Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. If you've been following the podcast for a while, you know that we like to cover facial recognition. To me, it's sort of a, a perfect nexus of technology and photography. And when it works right, it's magical and largely transparent. I personally use Apple Photos and Google Photos. And I think it's amazing to find people in my library so seamlessly. Mm. And when it prompts you to say, is this is this the same person? You know, it's checking, it's learning along the way. But we've also brought up companies like Clearview AI, which aggregated faces from multiple databases, including public imagery found on Facebook, Instagram, etc., and built a facial recognition system that it's been selling to law enforcement. And it's the aggregation of all these disparate sources to create a master file of photos, which I think is really, really scary. You know, imagine a rogue cop has a grudge against you. They snap a photo of you on their phone and then they can find thousands of images of you online through Mm. Clearview, for example. Right. Well, one of the largest pseudo public facial recognition databases is run by Facebook. In 2013, uh, in a white paper, Facebook revealed that 350 million photos were uploaded to the service daily. And that was eight years ago when only 45% of the U.S. had smartphones. That's an insane, that number blows my mind, 350 million, yeah. So, I mean, you have to assume that's doubled, if not tripled, if not more since then. Well, facial recognition has been around on Facebook actually since 2010, which was a bit of a surprise to me. But last week on November 2nd, Jerome Pacenti, the VP of Artificial Intelligence at Meta, which, as many of you know, is now the, the, mm-hmm. the parent company of Facebook, published a piece called An Update on Our Use of Face Recognition. And in that piece, Jerome uh, writes, quote, facial recognition can be particularly valuable when technology operates privately on a person's own devices. This method of on-device facial recognition requiring no communication of face data with an external server is most commonly deployed today in the systems used to unlock smartphones. He goes on to say that they are actually going to get rid of facial recognition on their platform. And initially when I read this, I was like, oh my God, they're, they're actually doing the right thing. Well, <laughs> they're doing the right thing in response to a couple of things. First of all, uh, the move follows a lawsuit that accused Facebook uh, of tagging people in violation of Illinois' biometric privacy law, leading to a $650 million settlement in February of this year. Hmm. I would have never guessed Illinois to be the state that has <laughs> this, kind of, I don't know, this random law that's getting to Facebook. Well, a number of cities and municipalities around the, around the, the United States are actually outlawing facial recognition for privacy concerns. And in 2019, Facebook paid the Federal Trade Commission a $5 billion fine for making misleading statements about who was going to be face printed. When facial recognition was initially rolled out, it was an opt-out from the system. So it was automatically turned on and you had to opt out of it. But eventually they switched their policy to opt-in and a third of the people on the platform prior to this announcement were opted in for automatic facial recognition. So that if they appeared in someone else's photos, they would automatically be tagged, which I, I guess I'm not that surprised at, at one third. I turned off my automatic facial recognition a long time ago. I don't want to be automatically identified yeah. in people's photos. 
Yeah, yeah, I I did too. And I and I never used like when it automatically would know who it was. I I never opted in for that either. When I was I, uploading my own photos to Facebook many moons ago. I think there's a bit of novelty when it first was turned on and you're like, "Oh, look, there's a a photo I took and Sarah's automatically tagged in my photos." And then I think for me when a lot of the conversations around privacy started to emerge and more and more people were saying, this is actually very intrusive. Mm-hmm. I kind of realized like, you know, I deleted almost all my photos of friends on Facebook. They're, That's right, you did. Yeah. I went through and spent a couple hours and I, I used to post all my friends' photos, mm-hmm. you know, an album a week of friends' photos. And I just went through and deleted them because I was like, I don't want Facebook to have control of these photos. Yeah. And this technology was introduced in like 2011. And so like we were not talking about like the safety around this at all or like the privacy that it might threat. We just we weren't having those type of talks. Well, technology always outpaces the discussions of ethics and morality and law and the legal uh, arguments, of course. Mm. Uh, Deepface is the name of the deep learning facial recognition system created by a research group at Facebook the research team there stated that the deep face method reaches an accuracy of 97.35%. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's on par, if not a little bit more accurate than what people can do. Wow. Which is crazy, right? Mm. And mm-hmm. then I read the Google version, which is called FaceNet, is even more successful than deep face. Using the same data sets, FaceNet records an accuracy of 99.63%. And this is the technology that's being used on Google Photos, which again, you know, against my own photos, when it finds people, it's a joy to mm-hmm. use. You know, when I'm looking uh, for specific photos of friend X, it can find them super, super easy. Although the processing for Google Photos happens in the cloud, they don't aggregate it across user accounts. So just because I identified you, Sarah Jacobs, in my photos doesn't mean that everyone else who has a photo of you in some of their photos will have your name auto-tagged. So it's a bit of a walled garden that makes this massive difference in privacy. Now, arguably, you could say, well, but Google, somebody at Google, some engineer has access where he or she can aggregate everything and see all the photos of you across the billions of photos in Facebook. I'm sure they have controls around that, but it is, in theory, possible. Oof. I have used Adobe Lightroom Classics uh, facial recognition, which works locally on my computer for many, many years. But I got to tell you, it is terrible. Oh, really? It's slow. It's buggy. The UI is just awful. Hmm. It it doesn't really learn. Um, I did find a, a program called Xire Pro, which is a piece of software out of Germany. I ran it against 90,000 photos. Uh, in in a year's worth of photos on my uh, on my hard drive, and I got mixed results. I mean, it's definitely better than Lightroom, but it's not a hundred percent accurate. It's probably more like seventy five percent accurate, hmm. and there's no way to sort of retrain it. So I don't know the convenience. It's it's a it's a shame that I can't get Google Photos esque results on my desktop. Mm-hmm. But for the trade off of privacy, I guess it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that these like on desktop programs aren't working as well, even though like they're reading higher quality, higher res images, I would guess, than like Facebook where you're having to upload, you know, a compressed JPEG. 
Yeah, but you know, I, guess I, I went down a little bit of a, a YouTube rabbit hole last night looking at how these technologies actually work. Mm-hmm. And even if you have a really big image, because it would actually take so much compute time, they they shrink the image down. Oh, even that yeah, I see. Yeah, even if it's working locally, it would still you yeah. know it, you if you have a fifty megabyte file, and then they say there's also like hidden data layers of data behind that, so fifty million pixels could actually be like a hundred million pixels, and it would just take forever to determine whether your face, Sarah Jacobs, is is actually your face. So mm-hmm. they really, really simplify it into like smaller blocks. You really only need like a 256 pixel image to determine wow. that you are you. Or, you know, it's getting pretty accurate. I mean, it's crazy. That is really crazy. Yeah. That's crazy to think about. Well, um, Input Magazine published an article about Meta uh, that they will actually continue to use facial recognition technology, even though Facebook is technically um, deleting a 1 billion facial recognition templates. Um, Meta is going to con- is not eliminating deep face in its uh, which is, as you mentioned, the house-made facial recognition algorithm that it uses. So I think that's just an important thing to note that Meta could still implement this, deep face um, when it when it is ready. Well, the name change was sort of predicated by the move towards AR and VR. Mm-hmm. And so who knows what they're going to do with all of this data, you know, to construct your avatar in the metaverse or whatever they're going to do right. in the future. It's all, it's all sort of ambiguous and scary and maybe a brave new world, but... I'm, I'm going to stay in the real world for, for as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good plan. There is a new book that intrigues me. It's called The Photograph That Changed My Life. Um, it's being published by Art Cinema, and curator and gallerist Zelda Cheadle put it together. Um, over 50 interviews with artists, including photographers and musicians and filmmakers, asking them what single photograph changed their life or like helped shape their art or help shape who they are. And Zelda interviewed some wonderful people, including Alex Soth, Nan Golden, Alex Pranger, Gregory Crutzen. Um, and the photos that the artist references are pr- printed alongside the artist's stories. And I just think that, that it's such a simple idea for a book, but it's also so genius. I, I really want to get my hands on it. I know it's only 20 pounds. So it's not that expensive of a book. They have one little excerpt uh, from Alex Prager's contribution. And she talks about this image by a photographer. I'm going to butcher the name, but Nesta Peripovich. Uh, and it's a, it's a gentleman wearing a suit. I, I assume maybe he's in uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe. And he's on top. He's walking across a gap between buildings coming off of an iron railing, walking onto the roof of the adjacent building. And it's kind of like a decisive moment, you know, image mm-hmm. right, that feeder, you know, he's, he's in mid step. Um, and, and she says, I not only want to know what happens next, but what, what led him to this moment. I was mm. just beginning to experiment with the idea of producing scenes that walked a line between reality and artifice. When I discovered this picture. Here in this, this frame is the perfect balance of, of a meticulously staged scenario joined with the raw and wild. The stakes are high, but the comedy of life still triumphs. Brilliant. I had never seen this photo before. I think it's, uh, I think it, uh, the concept for this book is fantastic. Love it. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool to look at this photograph that Alex talks about and then think about Alex's work where she creates a lot of cinematic like staged um, photographs yeah. and to think about the evolution of her imagination from maybe seeing this and then it striking, striking an idea uh, is just really cool. I, I'd like to get it. And Alex Soth, his photograph that he talks about um, was taken by Hugh Welch Diamond, and it's titled The Face of Madness, which was taken for a series called The Origin of Psychiatric Photography. And he says he remembers this photograph from his childhood, and it is, quote, it is quite profound how this picture has linked to my practice. It's a striking portrait of a man who's clearly mentally disabled, um, and it's taken though as though it is a normal portrait from back in like the 1920s. It's a fascinating image. I can't wait to, to get my hands on this book and compare these origin photos to the work that the artists are producing today. It's, it's going to be a fascinating comparison. Speaking of books, we've spoken multiple times about the model and author, Emily Ratajkowski, whose book My Body was just published. And according to the New York Times and other outlets, she wrote the book to, quote, reassert control of her image. Well, at 30 years of age, Ratajkowski is still very much in her physical prime. And as a model, she'll never escape the gaze of others. In the New Yorker's photo booth column, they recently published a set of images by the photographer Jocelyn Lee, whose new book Sovereign features nude photos of women between the ages of the mid-50s into the mid-90s that she took over a period of 15 years. The lead of the article uh, by uh, Margaret Talbot in The New Yorker refers to uh, the book Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf in describing the character Clarissa, quote, newly aware of herself as a woman of a certain age, walking down the street thinking, this body with all its capacities seemed nothing, nothing at all. Now, in Lee's forward to this book, Sovereign, she writes, This work matters now more than ever. In a world saturated with Instagram filters and other youth-obsessed industries, Lee seeks to bring to view the natural beauty of women of all ages and all body types. No body is deserving of invisibility, and this book marks an imperative for a long-overdue paradigm shift. I thought this was a fascinating juxtaposition. Mm. of Emily Ratajkowski's book, Trying to Reclaim Her Image, while the older women, at least implied, are, are in a sense, trying to be seen. Mm -hmm. I, I love this body of work from Jocelyn Lee. It's, it's just, it's striking. The portraits are so tender. Yeah. They're so, uh, she, she says in the article that her work has been um, critiqued a lot as romantic and that she's just sort of, taken that on and embodied it. And it's true. The work is, has a romantic sense. It's a celebration of the body. Um, and it is like, like she says, it is so needed in this time when all we're seeing is filtered faces. You found an op-ed in the New York times about Ratajkowski's book yeah. and the author Molly Young writes, quote, it is inarguably better that Ratajkowski rather than some horny bozo receive the profits from her image, but does a more equitable distribution of cash really make a difference to the young women who scroll through Instagram rapidly absorbing new reasons to despise themselves? That, it seems to me, is the unsolvable moral question at the heart of this book. You will not find that same question in Jocelyn Lee's book. 
And mm. you know the, the 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 weird thing about looking at Jocelyn Lee's book, you know, you can't look at Emily Ratajkowski and not think like sexy woman. She's just well, some some people might not, <laughs> but sure. <laughs> but <laughs> on you know, this show, no. <laughs> <laughs> on this show, right? They're, they're, you know, it's almost inescapable. It's almost part of the human condition to look at physical beauty and just not be able to turn away from it because that is the selfish gene, the biological imperative, you know, beauty as a marker of health. Mm-hmm. And then when mm-hmm. I look at Jocelyn Lee's work, you know, it's almost like the nudity kind of like slips away mm. in a lot of ways for me. The only image that was really like, whoa, there's an image of a woman who had a, a partial mastectomy. Mm-hmm. So she's missing her right breast, and that's the one where it's like, whoa. But almost every other image, it I'm not phased at all by the fact that these women are nude, that their skin is a little, you know, saggy, that their boobs are a little saggy. It just seems like they're occupying this space, and the photos are just fantastic. Yeah, it it does. Uh, it just feels so natural, yeah. um, and I think that's what is the. And I think that that's the beauty of the work is how natural it feels. And, and it doesn't feel, um, for, for me, it doesn't feel invasive looking right. at it because you can tell that there is a trust in the photographer, a relationship between subject and photographer. And yeah, it's gorgeous. I, uh, I've recently been watching Golden Girls. <laughs> do you know, the, <laughs> yes, do you know the 80s show? Of course. Yeah. So like, this is really just hitting on a theme in my life right now. Just kind of watching yeah middle middle age to older women you know live live in their best lives so we need some some nude betty white is what you're saying (laughs) no (laughs) no we don't we we don't but man do i love golden girls (laughs) you know in the new york article uh they mentioned that two of lee's subjects judith and nancy have been posing for her for decades and remember this project uh was photographed over 15 years and they told the author of the article that they don't love how they look in some of the images, but they treasure the experience of making them with Lee, who they say the, whose process is creative and collaborative. Mm. And I thought that was really fascinating. And, you know, I was looking at these images. So there's the two side-by-side images of Judith, one taken in 1999, where I would say she's probably, you know, mid-50s. And then Judith at home in 2009, a decade later mid 60s to late 60s, it reminded me a bit of the longitudinal photography that Sally Mann or Jock Sturges did. But Mm. they started photographing, you know, children, controversially children, right? New children who then turned into teens who turned into adults. Yeah. Lee's photos start in late middle age. It's a completely different feeling and a very, very unique perspective to go from like middle life to old life, you know, old age in a mm-hmm. series of nudes. I, I, I just think it's wonderful, wonderful work. So congratulations to Jocelyn on that, on the new book, Sovereign. The work of Emilio Morinati passed my Twitter feed and caught my eye. He has been capturing surreal photos of the ash that was covering the Canary Island of La Palma. Um, and the photos are just absolutely surreal. In some images, the ash is like a brown and it's just covered forest and houses. And it looks as though you are on 
another planet. Maybe you're on Mars. <laughs> it's really, really striking. And he's been sharing him on Twitter and also on his Instagram. Emilio is a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, recently won because of his coverage of COVID-19 in Spain, focusing on the lives of elderly. Um, but he, I mean, he's been shooting since the late 80s and working exclusively for AP since 2004. I recently saw the movie Dune in theaters, which for some of you know, it takes place on a desert planet. And that was my first thought when I saw some of these images. Um, the, the color of the sand is lighter on Dune, but you know the feeling that I got of being off of the earth is what mm. Emilio's images sort of evoked in me. It, it's fascinating work to me in part because he does drone shots, he does close-up shots, there's something very graphic and angular to these images, the the clarity of color. You know, he has like blues and blue and greens against the brown. Um, there's also an image of these, I guess, sort of teak outside chairs kind of half buried in, in the, in the, the vol volcanic ash. Um, I mean, this stuff looks like it could be hanging in an art gallery. Yeah. Yeah. His use of light. I mean, he's just, he's following the light yeah. in such a beautiful way. And so it really contrasts the colors, like you mentioned, with that dark ash and just creates this really cool contrast. Well, I'm sure the destruction has been uh, uh, unpalatable to the people living on that island. And so we don't want to just make light of, of what's going on. But it it is the case that destruction often creates these surreal scenes, which for better or for worse, you know, capture certain beauty that we're not used to seeing in our, in our normal lives. And finally today, you know, Sarah, we were talking a few weeks ago about the uh, New York Public Library and how you could go to that room where they had all of the million images to, to go through. Yeah. And I told you at that time that I didn't have a library card. That's right. And you know what I did in the past two weeks? What? I got a library card. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as Arthur says... Having fun isn't hard when you got a library card. So, Alan, congratulations. You can have some fun now. It was so easy. You know, I went to uh, the library that was near my apartment, which I got to be honest, I didn't know it was there. And I went in and I just showed my ID. I didn't even have to, to fill out a form. He just took my ID, you know, mm -hmm. scanned a little plastic card. He gave me a keychain sized library card and a larger, you know, credit card sized library card. Now I guess I just have to go to the main public library location on 40th Street and check out that that room filled with images. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> you got it. You got to do it. <laughs> well, thanks for listening again. Since you're here, why don't you hit that subscribe button? You can always leave us a comment or rating, or you can tweet at us at Photoshelter with your thoughts about the podcast or anything you want us to cover. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Photo Shelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.